On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, uh, he sent his followers, those he had been teaching for several years, um, we co we've come to know them as his disciples. He sent them ahead into Jerusalem, and they, they gathered in an upper room to prepare a Passover meal. And so upon his arrival that night, Jesus, this suffering servant of God's, the one who had been teaching them that the first would have to become uh, the last, and the last would indeed then become the first, the one who had been teaching them that in order to be great in the kingdom of God, you would have to become the servant of all. This Jesus that said that he had come not to be served, but to serve, as he approaches the room, he likely hears an argument, some bickering. Now, we don't know this, but I'm guessing he probably heard them arguing and began maybe before he walked in to listen in a little bit. And if he had, he would have heard a pretty good tussle. One not really all that dissimilar to the one that went on in my house when I was growing up as a kid. Let me explain. I'm the oldest of four. I have uh, two younger brothers and a younger sister. There is nothing more annoying than having two younger brothers, especially when one of them is a massive suck-up. Um, <laughs> that uh, is my brother Matt, who's watching in Florida. <laughs> Greetings. <laughs> and so Matt, um, Matt was always, uh, he would always try to be my father's favorite. He would proclaim himself uh, my father's favorite. In fact, he would say, you're a nerd and I'm dad's favorite. Truth is, he was right on both of those accounts. Um, and he would do anything to just ingratiate uh, him to my dad over and over and more and more. And one of the ways it happened was the same way it actually is happening in this story. So we'd go to sit down for dinner every night and... Uh, you know, everybody would go to sit down Well, Matt wouldn't sit. And he wouldn't sit because he was waiting to see where Dad was going to sit because I got to sit next to Dad. I want to sit next to Dad. Where's Dad sitting? Because that's where I'm going to sit. And so for me, it just, I couldn't stand it, right? And so I would just like, well, where's Dad going to sit? Because I'm going to sit as far away as possible. If you actually want to understand, uh, this is why I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan, because my father loved the Giants. And of course, Matt, I love the Giants too, Dad, me too. So I'm like, well, I'll like the Cowboys then, fine. And the food would come around, you know, Matt, do you want green beans with your meatloaf? What is Dad having? Is Dad having green beans with his meatloaf? Because whatever Dad's having, that's what I'm having. And so that was my life growing up. Matt sucking up to Dad to be his favorite. And that's what's going on in the room. Jesus stumbles on an argument of his disciples trying to figure out who's going to sit next to Jesus. Literally, who's going to get to sit there? Who's going to be the greatest follower of Jesus's? Many of you know the story. Jesus hears it and he enters the room and he, he does something that had to be just wildly convicting. He gets down on his hands and knees and he assumes the role of chief servant. And by that I mean lowliest servant, he begins to wash their feet. It's a stunning reversal of roles, and I have to imagine it left them very quiet and quite convicted. The meal went on, uh, most of you know, a short time later, Judas gets up and he leaves, um, and he sets in motion all of the events that are going to lead eventually to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. And Jesus knows this, he knows his time is short. And so uh, with the remaining followers, he gathers them close and he gives them some final words, some marching orders, uh, literally before all hell breaks loose. And so here's what he says. He says, my children, I'm going to be with you only a little longer. And then he says this, a new command I give you, 
They had had lots of commands, hundreds and hundreds of them that they were trying to live up to. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you a singular new command, just one. This is it. Love one another. And then he says next, what I think should be is convicting to us this morning, as Jesus watching the feet, the feet of his disciples was to, to them that night. Here's what he said. He goes, as I've loved you, so you must love one another. And then here's this, this is just crazy. He goes, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. By this, by what? If you love one another. By this, by the way we love, it's love, it's the way we love that'll be our identifying mark going forward. Uh, if you're in the corporate world, it's our love that'll be our brand identifier. The thing that will let people know we're Christians. I want you to understand Jesus did not think that it would be the best thing for us to, like, put a, you know, oh, here's the way they'll know, put a chrome fish on your bumper and have it eating a Darwin fish. Then they'll know you're my disciple. Jesus did not say, I want you to understand, they'll know you're my disciple by the political party you join. Jesus did not say, I want you to understand people will know that you're following me based on your moral convictions. Jesus said people are going to know if you're following me by how radically you love. Extend it out even further, I, I, I think what this should mean is that if we went to the green in Morristown on this Memorial Day weekend, and I asked people with a camera and a microphone, just give me one word that comes to mind when you hear the word Christian. Now, based on what Jesus has taught, now this is not a trick question. The first service, they thought I was trying to trip them up. You're smarter than that service. I want you to understand that. This is not a trick question. If I went to the green and I said to people on the green, what are Christians known for? for? What is the answer that... that Jesus would want to be given. It would be love. If I went to the green and said, hey, one word to describe Christians, what are they known for being? What would they likely say? <laughs> Judgmental and hypocrites. Now think about that. We're supposed to be known because we love, but everybody says, we are either judgmental or we're hypocrites. I read a survey this week. It said 85%, that's like statistically off the charts. 85% of unchurched young adults believe Christians are hypocritical. You want to know how you knew the answer to this, though? Here's the interesting part. It's the reason you knew what they'd say on the green. 47% of young adults inside the church, about half the people that are sitting here right now, look to your left, look to your right, we're a bunch of hypocrites. Half of us in here are thinking that right now. And so we're pretty deep into this 40 for 40 series, looking at the 40 most influential and important chapters of the Bible. Gave you all a resource when we started called The Good Book by Darren Spoo and Kyle Eidelman. And, and they go through these chapters. And if you've been tr tracking with this, you know eventually you plow headfirst into Matthew, which is, uh, was um, one of Jesus' followers. And he, he wrote... Um, a pretty convicting, um, I don't want to call it a chapter because Matthew didn't write it as a chapter, but it, he recorded some pretty convicting words of Jesus 
in what we now know as chapter 6. But it's not just Matthew that wrote these down, and it's not just contained in chapter 6. In fact, if you really want to get convicted, go home and study what Jesus said about hypocrites. It's everywhere. I mean, I'm a pastor, and I didn't realize how overarching this theme and this teaching of Jesus is on hypocrisy. Now, here's what I want you to know before you get worried. Thankfully, Jesus loves sinners and hypocrites. Um, So that's good. But if you spend some time in the scriptures, here's the other thing you'll discover. Jesus may love sinners and hypocrites, but boy, he hates hypocrisy. I mean, he really hates hypocrisy. I can't can't explain this enough. He really hates hypocrisy. I think I know why. Brendan Manning actually put his finger on it. He summed it up this way. Uh, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. See, we're supposed to be winning people to Jesus, wooing them towards God by our love, but somehow we've chased them off with our uh, judgmentalism and our hypocrisy. Now, Let's be honest. We, we, we make no mistake about it. Uh, hypocrisy is not just a Christian problem. It's part and parcel of the human condition. God was condemning it long before Jesus showed up on the scene. In fact, Jesus actually cites Isaiah's words, when he conf- which is, was an Old Testament prophet that lived hundreds of years before Jesus came. Jesus cites Isaiah's words when he confronts some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law who were complaining about Jesus' disciples. They came and they were, they were railing on Jesus. Why isn't it that your disciples don't ceremonially wash their hands before they eat? And Jesus says to them words that they would have known because they had to memorize the, the prophets. So these Pharisees would have heard these words before. Jesus looks at them and goes, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their, te- or their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And I think this is the intersection where Christians and hypocrisy, or where Christian hypocrisy is birthed at the corner of heart and rules. I'll give you that distinction in a minute. So we'll jump in. Matthew chapter 6. Here's what Jesus says. Be careful. Warning. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others with the purpose of to be seen by them. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. Because if you do this, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. And so when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. And so, guys, what do hypocrites do? Hypocrites perform religious practices. They do good works. They give money. They help the poor. They do religious deeds, not out of relationship with Christ. They do it through some legal interpretation of what is needed to make themselves look good before other people. Hypocrites do religious things in order to be seen to look good. And then Jesus goes on. He says, when you pray, now prayer is a good thing, right? But when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. You see the pattern? 
What do hypocrites do? They use religious practices, even good ones, in order to look good. Jesus goes on. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. What's the matter, John? I've just been fasting. You know, love the Lord. Just want you to know I haven't eaten in like 42 days. Don't know. When you do this, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. They disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. I'm telling you, they've received their reward in full. And so what a hypocrite does is he takes, he removes the relationship from the equation. He comes up with an overarching set of rules and principles, and he performs them publicly so that he can receive something back, so that people notice him. The word Jesus is using here for hypocrite, and some of you know this, um, it, it, at least it, it was recorded in the Greek, and the Greek word is, I, I want to pronounce it right, hupokrites, 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 which means actors on a stage. That's what hypocrite means, actors on a stage. It was the name given to the actors who would wear Greek theater masks. And they would they'd play different characters on a stage. Some of you have seen this over time, right? The guy would come out, he'd have the happy mask on, and he'd be happy. And then he'd go, same guy, come out, put the sad mask on, and he'd be sad. Same actor underneath, no different, but up front on the stage, mask on, he appears quite different. Nothing is different inside, it's just the appearance on the outside. This is what Jesus said religious leaders of his day were, and he says... Followers of mine, this is really important. 21st century followers of Jesus, this is really important. Don't do this. Don't be phonies. Don't look what, like one thing on the outside and walk around unchanged on the inside. This is an important distinction I want to make this morning. All of the warnings and the woes spoken of in the scriptures regarding hypocrites, and there's a lot of them, they're not speaking about people who believe one thing but then do another. Okay, we all do that, right? None of us, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us understand what God calls of us, but we fall short of it, okay? That's not being a hypocrite. It's important to understand what hypocrisy is not. Hypocrisy is not the disparity between what we are and what we long to be. It's not the gap between what we want to do and what we actually do. That's just called sin, okay? Hypocrisy is the gap between our public persona and our private character. Hypocrisy is the failure to practice what you preach, and the emphasis there is on preach. Appearing outwardly religious while actually being full of uncleanliness and and self-indulgence. And so I've reflected on my own life, and I find that I am free of hypocrisy. (laughs) Which would just make me a hypocrite, actually. So some of you know the story. I've told it before. Some of you don't, so I'm going to tell it again. It it has to do with the founding of Beyond the Walls that we just raised $51,000 for. My friend Drew has heard this enough story. You could probably get him up here to tell it. Um, He's been on enough trips to Guatemala. But I was was going to New York City with my brothers a bunch of years ago. It was a little while back. Rutgers was in a bowl game. That'll tell you how long ago it was. Um, And we were going to ESPN Zone to watch Rutgers play whoever in a bowl game. And we were walking through the city, and there was a homeless guy on the street. And uh, I was going to do what, what most of the time I do, which is tell people that I care about the poor and walk right by. But I felt convicted in the moment to give this poor um, panhandler some money. So I reached into my pocket, and uh, I, I, the smallest bill I had was a 20. 
And so at that point, I, it was very clear to me that the Lord was saying, no, I, you know, John, there's no way. God wants you to do this. Otherwise, you'd have a five, right, or a single. But I only had a 20. And who's going to give a homeless guy 20 bucks? So I put the 20 back in my pocket and began to move on. Until you ever just get that feeling where you're like, you got to be kidding me, Lord. A 20? Do you know how it's? A beer at ESPN sounds like 10 bucks. This is going to be two beers. This is what was going on in Pastor John's head, just putting it out there. And so now, being down two beers, I walked back and uh, I said to the guy, uh, I said, hey, you know, God told me to give this to you. And gave him the 20 bucks and walked on. Now, I was considerably behind my brothers at this point. They didn't care what I was doing. And it's that same suck up, Matt, was up leading the pack. And so I caught up and uh, they said, where were you? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Did you guys see that homeless guy? Yeah. I said, well, I, you know, I stopped and gave him money. They're like, all right. And so we kept going. They didn't question me about it, which was really quite frustrating for me. So I said, uh, yeah, so I gave him some money. Yeah, I know you told us. Um, and they just wouldn't bite on the story, you know? So uh, I said, yeah, you know, I just, I was going to give him some money. And uh, I reached into my pocket. Would you believe I only had 20 bucks? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, and I gave them the 20. Yeah, they had the same reaction, exactly like that. Like, yeah, that's great. Nothing. So I get, we get to ESPN Zone. Now I'm sitting next to my brother-in-law. Now he missed out on the story because he met us there. And so I'm sitting there. You ever have, have you done this where you just feel like, I, I got to tell you this because I, it's just, it's oozing out of me. It's like garlic the morning after, you know, you're just like, I have to let you know about this. And so uh, I said, hey, uh, you know, we were walking in. There was a homeless guy on the, on the street and uh, I gave him 20 bucks. Yeah, he had the same exact reaction. Just, <laughs> that's great. Anyway, and so I was kind of bummed out because nobody seemed to be celebrating me. So uh, I, uh, I went to the bathroom. I don't know if you have the ESPN Zone, it's not there anymore, but ESPN Zone had one of the coolest male bonding experiential things ever, which is TVs over the urinals, right? <laughs> and so like you could continue to watch the Rutgers bowl game while you're at the urinal. And so I'm in there, and a guy comes and stands next to me at the urinal, and I felt this overarching desire come over me to say to the guy, I didn't, um, only because I was afraid that he might punch me or something. See, so what happened is uh, uh, about a couple days later, I kept telling people this story, and one day God's just like, you are a massive hypocrite. And uh, I was a massive hypocrite. I had more than received my reward. That was the best 20 bucks I ever spent. I got more glory. I'm still getting glory out of the 20 bucks I gave that guy. Told the story. Drew, how many times? Too many. I have gotten more than my money's worth out of that 20 bucks. I was a hypocrite. I was an actor on a stage. That's not really who I was. It was just a role I was playing. Matthew recounts later on in his gospel, Jesus speaking about what theologians refer to sometimes as the seven woes, but woe unto you. Maybe you've heard it taught before. Six of those seven woes, guess who they're spoken to? Hypocrites. It's not woe to you prostitutes, woe to you drunkards, Woe to you, it's woe to you hypocrites. In fact, I'll give you one. Jesus said, 
Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You realize Jesus talked so much about this? You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean. Work on the inside first. The relational things with God, not trying to live up to some law and use it to look good. Work on the inside. You look like one thing, you espouse one way to live, but you don't live it. In fact, Jesus said of these religious leaders, and I think we're still doing this today, and I'm a religious leader, and so this is very convicting to me. He said, he said of these religious leaders, they say, and yet they do not do, for they bind heavy burdens that are hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. And so here you have Jesus making reference to one of the problems we get ourselves into. We bind heavy burdens that are hard to bear. We take all kinds of rules and laws and we lay them on men's shoulders. We just build law upon law, rule upon rule, telling people if they want to be loved or accepted or forgiven by God, they need to be more like me. Look how good I am at keeping the rules. Let me give you a modern-day example of how the church does this. Um, if you're familiar with Scripture at all, Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a real law guy. Like, he kept them all. And at the end, he, he realizes they're all of no use to him at all. That he needs, he, he's saved by faith through a relationship with Jesus. And so Paul's writing to the church in Rome. And Rome was a pretty happening place. And the church and, and the people outside of the walls of the church were getting in little moral disagreements about what was right and what was wrong. And so today, modern-day Christians often go to Romans chapter 1 to cite all of the things that are wrong with people outside of the church, people that don't share our moral convictions. Now, let me be clear here. God has given us moral convictions. He has something to say in regards to what is right and what is wrong, what pleases him, what's his will, and what is not. I'm not walking away from any of those things. Don't email me. But oftentimes, what, what well-meaning believers will do is they will take Romans chapter 1 and they will beat people over the head outside of the church with it, saying that it is you people who don't follow these moral convictions. You need to understand your sinfulness. So here's what Paul wrote at the end of Romans chapter 1. And I want you to listen to the words in Romans chapter 1 and then hit what he follows it with. Here's how he closes Romans chapter 1, the one we wield a lot. He says, Furthermore, just as they did not think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to depraved mind, so that they do what ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. They're gossips. They're slanderers, they're God-haters, they're insolent and arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. Ugh. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. They know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do those very things, but they approve of those who practice them. And maybe somebody has hung that on you. And this all sounds pretty condemning of those outside of the faith who practice their own morality based on their own standards. But the interesting thing is that this letter was not written to them. He's actually not addressing them at all. It's written to people who knew these things were not the will of God for their lives, 
and who were condemning and passing judgment on the they's in their lives. And so Paul goes on in Romans chapter 2, which you'll rarely see Christians wielding this one. I want you to see if you notice a change from they here. It starts with word one, you. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever at point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Paul's going, you Pharisee, you hypocrite, you actor on a stage, you condemn them for their outward behavior, but on the inside of your cup, you're no different. In fact, don't you realize, Christian, please listen to me here, this is so important, don't you realize that in judging them, you are missing the key ingredient to wooing people to God? Love. Paul says, don't you realize, don't you remember, it is not judgment that wins people to Christ. He said, it is God's kindness that is intended to lead people to repent, not your judgment. Christian friend, I know that you want to follow God, but please hear me. It is not your judgment upon people, the they's in your life, that is going to be winning anybody to Christ. It is his kindness and your love that make him attractive, not your judgment. Not mine either. Because what's part and parcel with being a hypocrite is being a judger. The, the concepts are just intertwined and coupled all throughout the scriptures. And here's why, because at their heart, it's the same issue. Self-righteousness and self-elevation. I, I need to make sure you know how righteous I am. Did you know I gave that guy a 20? Because it elevates me in my own eyes. And then I need to judge you. You know that show off Matt? Hey, Matt, you walked right by him. Pfft, look at you. More of me, less of you. Up with me, down with you. Because you see, I like the spotlight. I'd like to be seen. I, 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 I want to make much of me. And maybe if I judge you, I could get much of me by making a little less of you. See, hypocrisy and judgment. This is so interesting. There's actually science backing this up. You know how I love this stuff. Uh, talking about uh, coupling, the coupling of hypocrisy and judgmentalism. There was an experiment aimed at uh, turning people into hypocrites in a lab. Here's what they did. They took participants and they assigned them a set of tasks uh, they were given a list of tasks. One would be assigned to themselves and the other to an unknown second participant. Now, one type of task that they could get was exciting. It was like a cool, fun, hot thing to do, and it had a juicy reward with it. The other task that, that was a possibility was just boring and mundane, and it didn't have any reward attached. Well, how would you figure out who was going to get what task? A coin was placed next to the participants, and it had written instructions explaining that Everybody believed flipping the coin would be a fair way to distribute the tasks. 
You with me on this? So we're going to flip the coin and we'll see what happens. Practically, all the participants beforehand agreed flipping the coin would be the most moral thing to do. But when it came down to it, only half of them, when they were put in the room, actually even flipped the coin. With practically everybody in the non-coin flipping half giving themselves the exciting task. Among the people who did flip the coin, which was labeled self on one side, other on the other side, what should the percentage have been, been about getting the good task versus the bad task? Anybody? It should have been around. Yes, somehow these people that flipped the coin, 90% of them still managed to get the exciting task assigned to them. I mean, what are the odds? People want to look fair by using a coin to make their decision, but behind the scenes, they're just as selfish as the people who didn't use the coin. It's a perfect example of moral hypocrisy. What's interesting is, it's not just a Christian problem, and what's even more interesting is the study went on to say this. Often, when we rate the fairness or morality of other people's actions, we judge them more harshly than we judge ourselves doing the same action. And so they went back and redid this test, and, and here's what they discovered. They asked people to rate the, uh, their own fairness in this game and the other people's fairness. On a scale of one being extremely unfair, seven being extremely fair, People scored themselves a four. I'm slightly above average in terms of my moral convictions. And what did they rate the other people? Three. They're not quite up to what I am. The deadly combination of hypocrisy and judgment. Why do we do this? especially as followers of Jesus. Why have we become so judgmental? How did a movement whose brand was supposed to be love, how did it become hypocrisy and judgment? Andy Stanley has one funny answer to it. He says one of the reasons we become so judgmental is we're jealous. Instead of really falling in love with Jesus and enjoying a life of freedom in Christ, we have traded that in for a list, a set of rules and, and proper ways to live. And so what happens is we start to look at how people are living out there. And they seem to be having a pretty good life, don't they? I mean, the sex and the drinking and the smoking. And they seem to just be enjoying it. And I'm in here trying to live a good moral life. How come their noses aren't growing? Craig Rochelle's got a pretty funny line about this. He says, uh, if sin isn't fun, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> he says, the problem is, we're in here looking out there going, they seem to be having a lot more fun than we are. So we start judging them because we've reduced religion to rules and not a relationship with God. We're not enjoying any kind of relationship with God and we're certainly not enjoying these rules. The only thing that's going to make this palatable is for me to have to judge them. And so I think that's at play, but I think at the end of the day, a lot of it just comes down to elevating us and diminishing another, not loving others, not being kind to others. It diminishes people, and that's why Jesus made it really plain. Here's what he said. You've heard it before. Do not judge. Don't be judged. Or you'll be judged. In fact, this is what Paul said to the Romans. He, he said, don't, uh, what he said before about, you know, uh, they, 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 you, 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 you. Don't you understand that you who are judged, or you who are judging are going to be judged? Now, let me ask you a question. Does anybody know how you're going to be judged if you judge? Well, Jesus explains. He says, in the same way that you judge others, 
you're going to be judged, and with the measure you use, it'll be measured on you. Let me break this down for you. In other words, in whatever ways you're judging someone, you'll be judged. If you're judging their clothing, oh, did you see what she wore to church? Your clothing is going to be judged. You judge their language, your language will be judged. You judge how they raise their kids, and how you raise your kids is going to be judged. You judge how they drive on Route 80 in rush hour, breaking news, you might not like it, but you might be judged for how you drive down Route 80 at rush hour. And here's the crazy thing, with the same measure. In other words, if you're like a really strict judge, like, you know, the Pharisees were like, we're the moral authorities. The, the inside's filthy, but we're the moral authorities. We keep all the laws. We have a really high bar. You got a high bar? Because if you're a strict judge holding someone to some kind of high standard, whatever standard you're holding them up to, whatever measure it is you're measuring someone up against, you're going to be held up and measured by the same thing. This is the golden rule of judgment. Judge unto others as you would have them judge you. And so the question here is, how would you like to be judged? See, I'd, I'd like to be judged against Stalin. I look pretty good. Hitler, maybe. Put me up against him, I shine. Some of you are probably going, I wouldn't mind being judged against John. I think I can take him on in that. <laughs> See, I don't want to be judged against Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. I want to be judged mercifully, which kind of reminds me what Jesus' brother James, who I would think understood a lot about this, he wrote that judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Oh, I hate that. And then he goes, mercy triumphs judgment. And so here's what Jesus says. He goes on, because he doesn't just say do not judge. He goes on. We just like the do not judge part. He goes on. Uh, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, but you pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own? All right, so this is a question. Jesus says, why do you look at that speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Well, I thought about that. Do you know why? It makes me feel good. Right? If I can look at the flaws you have, I suddenly feel a little bit better about myself. It's a profound question. I think it's a real question. Church, we're known as hypocrites and judge being, for being judgmental people. And so let's, let me ask you the question. Who are you judging right now? In the first service, somebody told me, somebody back there yelled, I'm judging him right now. Maybe you're judging me right now. But you're probably judging someone at work or at school or at home, your mother, another mother, your father, another father, brother, sister, someone on Facebook. I mean, social media is like a judgmental machine, isn't it? I mean, I just spew judgment all over Facebook. Who are you judging? It's a Democrat, isn't it? <laughs> right? Liberal. Oh. Maybe it's a Republican. I saw that MAGA hat. No. And here's Jesus' question. And it's a deep question. Why? 
Why are you judging them, but you're not looking at the, the, the same issue in your own life? Because this is the continuation of the don't judge teaching. We don't talk about it often, but Jesus didn't say, he didn't just say, don't judge. The story continues. He does not say, never judge. He doesn't say that. He says the same thing about judging here as he did to the Pharisees. Remember what he told the Pharisees? He said, first clean the inside of the cup, and then the outside will be clean. He says the th same thing to us. First, first, take the plank out of your own eye. Here's what Jesus says. He goes, you hypocrite. Again, the combination of hypocrisy and judgment. You hypocrite. You're, you're actors on a stage. You look one way, but actually you have a plank in your own eye. And here's the lesson about judging, especially for all of us hypocrites. He actually now teaches us something. He goes, first, first, here's the thing you've got to first do. Take the plank out of your own eye. First, when I see myself judging somebody else's sin, I have to stop and in that same area of my own life, look at the, my own sin. I'm likely struggling in the same era. Maybe not outwardly, because I look good out here. Maybe not on my Facebook page or my Instagram shots. But Jesus goes, listen, look a little deeper. Before I judge some, how somebody treats their wife, maybe I should reflect on how I treat my wife. Before I judge how somebody's raising their kids, maybe I should stop and, for a little bit and just reflect on how I'm raising my kids. Before I judge someone's political stance, sexual proclivities, language, habits, spending, work ethic, before I judge someone else's, I need to stop and examine my own. In fact, not just examine it. Not just examine it. Jesus goes further. He doesn't say examine the plank of my own eye, but remove it. Fix it. Before I judge someone and I go to talk to them about their issues and I wave a finger at them regarding their behavior, I need to not just examine mine, but I need to fix it. And here's why. Because in examining it and fixing it and wrestling with it, suddenly now I have to deal with it in my own life, understanding the power that whatever this thing is in my life, the, the power that it has. Once I've developed that understanding of it and I've, I've won a victory over it, then and only then can I have some compassion for somebody that too, too is struggling with it, Jesus goes. And then, number two, and then, you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus never says, don't judge, let everybody do what they want to do. Jesus says, before you start judging, you better start with yourself. And get yourself right. And then you can go to somebody else. Do the hard work on sin in your own life. You've got to get better in a sense first before you can go help someone else who's struggling. When we do it this way, when we see sin in someone else's life, instead of judging someone, when instead we look for it in our own life, and then we work on it, and then only then do we go, that's not hypocrisy. When we look at the sin in our own life, and we work on it, we remove the plank first, then when we go to somebody to talk about an issue, that's not judgment. Because I've been healed, so maybe now I can be a healer. That's not hypocrisy. That's not judgment. That's love. I love Paul in 1 Corinthians. He goes, what business of mine is it to judge those outside the church? So I, this is a powerful principle. I've employed it in my own life. Not perfectly. My family's sitting in the front. And so 
That's the worst part about being a pastor and teaching on being hypocrisy, is you're having your wife and your kids sitting here. But here's the deal, like, you know, when you start to, you know, you, you should read your Bibles. Like, some of this stuff is really pretty convicting. And so, you know, over time as I've worked on this stuff, I started to think about things like when Joan would say something to me that upset me, I would, you know, Joan told me a long time, by the way, you're my husband, not my pastor. And so I try to walk that line correctly. And uh, so... So in terms of like, Joan would say something, and what I would usually do would be snap back with some level of judgment. I don't feel that you're giving me the respect that I am. Everybody would agree I'm due. <laughs> I don't know why that was funny. <laughs> and so that would be kind of like the thing, right? Like somebody insults me, I, I'm gonna make you aware of your shortcoming here, right? And so a little while ago, I started reading this stuff, and then you try to do it, and it's really quite frustrating, but it's amazingly powerful. And so, like, if Joan said something to me that I thought was disrespectful, I started stop instead of saying, you know what, well, you know, let me tell you something about you. Um, I started going, well, let's see. I want to correct her about her being disrespectful to me and her attitude about this. So guess what I should do first? I should look at this attitude in my own heart. Have I been disrespectful to Joan? And I reflected and I thought to myself, absolutely not. And so I went to her. <laughs> See, it's, it's really quite a powerful tool because then you start going, huh, I guess I gotta work on this issue first long before I go to talk to her about it. This is why there, there's nobody that's a more uh, powerful speaker about drug addictions than somebody that was once addicted to drugs they've been there and they tasted it and they know it and they have compassion and love and not judgment. And so now, if after some amount of time I start to take the plank out of my own eye and then I go to my wife and say something in love, the reception is very different. And so as the band comes up, I'll just leave you with this. I, I descended into what I think Dante said was maybe the fourth level of hell this week. I went out shopping for a used car. Literally. Have you been shopping for a used car lately? And so um, I, 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 uh, I was test driving. I, you know, I'm a 50-something-year-old man, and they still get in the car with you. Like, you're like, you know, can you, I can't just drive this without you here. And so anyway, I'm driving with this, this car with an old guy, and he was an old, cantankerous, cranky guy, and just treating all the people around him really nasty. And he would tell you, like, he didn't care that he was nasty. He kind of, he, he kind of liked it. He took some pride in it. And uh, he was telling me, ah, you know, he almost looked like a cartoon character. And, uh, and so we're driving along. We had to get some gas. And uh, he was treating me like, I'm like, hey, dude, th this car has no gas in it. And he goes, well, what are you driving it for? And I'm like, <laughs> literally. He's like, well, turn around, we gotta go get gas. So I'm at the gas station with him and he's yelling at the gas station guy. And so, uh, and I'm going, I can't believe this is my experience, buying a car. And so, uh, and I didn't buy it. But anyway, so he says to me at some point, the awkward conversation always turns to, so what do you do for a living? So I'm going, uh, I said, uh, and I always know, like, especially when they've been cranky, he's gonna be like, Ugh. a lot of people usually apologize when, when I say I'm a pastor. Oh, I'm really sorry, because I didn't mean to know what I said. I said, uh, I said oh, I'm a pastor. And he gave me the side eye and he goes, I don't go to church. And I gave him the side eye and said, I didn't think you did. And, uh, <laughs> his judgmentalism just wrapped up, right? I just did it, right? I just did it. So, 
So we started talking about it. I said, well, why don't you go to church? And he said uh, he was a Vietnam vet. He had done a bunch of tours. He had seen a lot of his friends killed. And, uh, and so he said to me, uh, he said, I grew up in, in the church. And he goes, um, he, he, was a, he grew up in a Christian denomination. And in the denomination that he grew up in, there's been a lot of hypocrisy. And there's been a lot of um, sin swept under the rug. And he said, uh, said the same old thing. Like, church is just so, so full of hypocrisy. I just practice... I, I'm a man of faith. I just, I don't go there. I practice it on my own. I couldn't help but just think, like, what if we had gotten the brand right? What if somehow, instead of the church being full of hypocrites, he thought, man, the church is just full of these people that love cranky old guys like me. I'll give you Gandhi's line as we close. I think it says so much. Gandhi said, I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. May we be the people that reclaim the brand. I give you a new command. Love one another as I have loved.